Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hi there, this is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers with a very special pre-episode message. We're coming up on the 130th anniversary of one of the most significant events in New York City history. That would be the Great Blizzard of 1888. That hit the Northeast on March 11th and pretty much wreaked havoc throughout the entire week. A March snowstorm, which is exactly what we are expecting right now, although we're not really sure if, if one's actually going to hit. The forecast has been dire, and so we thought that this would be a fun time, just in case we all do wind up getting snowed in, to re-release this very special episode that we recorded five years ago, back in 2013. But before we jump into the episode, we just wanted to make an announcement that next week, for all of our New York City area listeners, we're having a live event not just any live event, a trivia extravaganza. It will be hosted at the WeWork South Williamsburg space. We're, we're talking cocktails, bites, and a trivia showdown. That's on Wednesday, March 14th from 6 to 8 p.m. You can go to our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, to RSVP, or go directly to we.co slash boweryboys that's we.co slash boweryboys and now on with the snow show the bowery boys episode 148 the blizzard of 1888 hey it's the bowery boys hey the bowery boys is brought to you by eurocheapo.com Eurocheapo's editors inspect and recommend the best budget hotels in Europe. On the web at eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. On today's show, we are celebrating an anniversary of sorts of a tragic, crazy event that happened in New York in March of 1888. A crazy coincidence when you think about it, Greg, because this subject, the blizzard of 1888, is something that you and I discussed doing several months ago, mm-hmm. you know, leading into the winter season. However, of course, our plans were disrupted by Hurricane Sandy. <laughs> right. So today's topic, the blizzard of 1888, will have some parallels, actually, several. to what recently happened in New York in November of 2012. This was a storm of such ferocity, of such sheer snowfall, that actually altered the course of New York's history and facilitated some major changes in life here in New York. You know, several of the sources that I checked out for this, Greg, referred to this as the most significant weather disaster in New York City history. Others have called it America's most famous storm. Mm -hmm. 
I'd be curious to know if any of these still stand today post-Sandy and post-Katrina and post-other disasters that have befallen us. And the storm didn't bring the most snow that the city would ever experience. There would be blizzards with more snowfall that would hit the city just about one every decade since. But it's the combination of factors behind the blizzard of 1888 that made it so impressive and so destructive. It shut down transportation. It shut down nearly all forms of communication. Keep in mind, this is the era before radio and television news. This is the era before widespread telephones, before refrigeration. So imagine if you will, that you live back in 1888, just whatever strata of life you want to put yourself in here, maybe an uptown gentleman or a downtown lady in five points. Take what you know about these eras. Picture yourself as we describe these events, because we've all lived through big storms. I mean, New Yorkers have lived through Sandy, but wherever you're listening to this, you've most likely lived through some kind of a snowstorm or, or some kind of natural weather occurrence. Put yourself into that mindset as you listen to us tell this harrowing tale of the blizzard of 1888. All right, Tom. Well, I might have overdressed for this occasion, but I've... Yes, I was wondering about this outfit. Got, got a, my parka on, my snowshoes, my Eskimo snowshoes, right. gloves, ready for a tale of this incredible blizzard. But before we get there... Well, you don't just want to jump into the snow here? Well, we need to set the stage. Before we cover the stage in a snow-white blizzard, we need to set... 1888 here. Combine all the information that we've used on prior podcasts and everything. Get us to this year so that we know in our heads like what we're looking at as we continue with our descriptions. Well, this is a period that you and I have covered quite extensively, Mm -hmm. and in several of the recent podcasts we talk about them, most notably in, say, the Edison and the Lighting Mm -hmm. of New York podcast. That would be a good one if you're into this era. But New York in the 1880s was, generally speaking, an era of growth. So here we are in post-Civil War America and a huge reconstruction effort in the South. Well, a lot of this material for the rebuilding of the South would pass through the industrial North. And that would mean boom times for, for the North. It would also, money would be traded through New York banks. It would even touch the New York Stock Exchange. New York was the financial center. It was also the industrial center. It was the country's most important port. As I mentioned with Edison, in 1882, Edison had begun lighting several dozen businesses downtown, and then other companies would get into the game too. So New York had electricity. Right. Edison downtown, and then you had those magical arc lights, of course, uptown, which had debuted earlier, which brought light to Madison Square Park and Union Square. Right. The city was moving uptown. Buildings were growing taller as well. As we also said in our Herald Square episode, it was around that area where all the entertainment was clustering, almost up to that area. Roughly between 14th up to 34th. Right. So imagine the city of booming businesses and and buildings getting taller and and stock tickers running like mad. (laughs) But also, very importantly at this period, the population of the city was booming. Why? Because, of course, this was a period when thousands of immigrants were arriving into the city every day, mostly from Italy, from Germany, from Ireland, and from Eastern and Southern Europe. 
And to greet them, who was greeting them? Why, of course, in 1886, the Statue of Liberty had been completed. Mm -hmm. So here's a city that's really starting to take the shape and form of the city that we know today. Mm -hmm. But it's getting wildly overcrowded, and you had vast stratas of wealth. You had very, very wealthy people living just a few blocks over from some of the poorest New Yorkers. Right. Again, a legacy which still survives in many parts of the city today. And when we're talking about New York City in 1888, we're also talking about the island of Manhattan for the most part, Mm -hmm. with a bit of the Bronx, which was annexed to Manhattan in 1874. But the city would not be consolidated for another 10 years. So you're walking around these city streets in 1888, and you look up, and you'll see a few things that you don't see today. Notably, you would see the elevated railroads running up 2nd, 3rd, 6th, and 9th Avenues. Correct. And, and they're fairly new right this time. They started in 1870s with the New York elevated up the 9th Avenue, and then 6th Avenue would follow soon after along with 3rd and 2nd Avenue. These four lines would run from the Battery Park up to 155th Street, and they would take tens of thousands of New Yorkers back and forth and to work every day. The other thing that you would see when you looked up was a sort of cobweb of crisscrossing wires, which is really incredible to consider, and I, I never think about this, but this is a boom time for technology as well with the telegraph and the, the telephone and electric cables that were strung from private poles all over the city. So that's an, an incredible thing to remember is if we're talking 1888, the telephone and then electrical power, both of those have not even been around for a decade. Right. You know? And so most people didn't have telephones. The city was just beginning to become electrified. They didn't quite know what to do with these wires. So at, although Edison buried his, most of the other electrical suppliers had them overhead. Right. Edison's were just down in the southern tip of Manhattan, and part of his deal with getting that first contract was that he would bury those. But then as this really took off, and other competing companies took electricity uh, north of this, it was far cheaper to do it above ground and string these cables from pole to pole. And the competing companies didn't want to hold each other's wires as well. So this was a complete mess with everybody (laughs) putting up their own poles... I mentioned the elevated railroads, but there were other ways to get around town, too. There were streetcars, and there were still horse-drawn carriages and and cabs. Thousands of – thousands, in fact, still. I mean, horses were all over Manhattan, and you still had horses doing their business in the street. And so street cleaning, street sanitation at this time was a horse of a different feather, (laughs) if you will, than it is today because you actually had – the droppings of animals in the street. And it was made worse by the fact that this was still, there was Tammany Hall corruption at this time. The Department of Street Cleaning was not really very well organized or enforced, and so entire neighborhoods would not get cleaned. The Lower East Side, the, the West Side of Manhattan, basically wouldn't be touched at all. Garbage wouldn't be picked up. Although a bright spot is that the Brooklyn Bridge opened in 1883, so it was just five years old at the point of the storm of 1888. So essentially, to me, it sounds like this is a city that is growing rapidly, trying to wrap its arms around a growing number of technologies, is perhaps growing a little bit too fast for its comfort level, that there Mm -hmm. are certain parts of the city, including these overhead wires, the overcrowding, that are making life a little bit difficult, but it's hard to manage these things when a city is growing at the speed in which New York is in 1888. Right, when, when the population, we should add, was about one and a half million mm-hmm. people. 
But enough of this background, Greg. Take us to the great storm. Let me take you to the present, because, of course, that's where we're at in our heads right now. Right. 1888. Yes. March of 1888. March. In fact, I'm going to take you just a couple days before. And so, Saturday, March 10th of 1888. Now, you could be excused for thinking, if you were walking down the street on this particular day, that winter was winding down. I'm not sure what the groundhog said in 1888, <laughs> but spring seemed to be arriving a little early. You could already observe the early blooms in Central Park. Flowers were already beginning to peek their heads open. Um, ladies were considering the spring fashions of the day. The New York Herald was even planning to run a poem in the newspaper on that Monday written by Walt Whitman called The First Dandelion. So it was springtime, like spring was right around the corner, and people were really antsy for it. You say that they were considering? Did they reject Whitman? Did they send him a yellow slip? Oh, I I think it actually did. No, I think it actually did run, but it was, of course, then... Oh, the day of the blizzard. Yeah. Okay, so so we're there. Now, where does the storm come in here? Because it sounds like a a beautiful spring setting. Well, I mean, no, I am no Al Roker. Um, yeah. Oh, no. Actually, I've always thought of you more as Willard Scott. I'm more of a Willard Scott, perhaps. Um, I, uh, but I am going to unveil my Gilded Age AccuWeather here. Right. Virtual map here with uh, animated clouds and sun here and low and high Gorgeous. pressures. This storm actually formed in the Midwest and, and traveled east, as most storms do. But it actually came from two separate weather events that mm-hmm. happened that then unfortunately clashed and created the storm. Which is one of the first kind of eerie parallels to Hurricane Sandy. That's exactly how Sandy was. Yeah, that's this is very strange. So it was a northern storm that sort of clashed with a southern one. And so they crossed the Midwest, a wall of storm front here. That southern storm made waterfall around South Carolina on that Saturday, like late that Saturday. And then sharply turned north. And so it began to move north right as this other storm was Mm -hmm. going that same direction. So they would clash around the northeastern United States that Sunday and Monday. This created a rare hurricane. In fact, sometimes they call this the Great Hurricane of 1888 because of the powerful winds that also came along with it. So it was a snowstorm in March with hurricane-strength winds. <laughs> Which is pretty rare for, for March. So this is like a weird confluence of just a bunch of awful things that happen. So Sunday... That of, poor dandelion. Oh, that first dandelion uh, is no match for this, unfortunately. Sorry, Walt. So Sunday, March 11th, and you know, after that nice little spring day, the temperatures dipped drastically, and it started pelting this freezing rain and got very, very icy and slick. Now, this happened in the afternoon, so most people had come home from church mm-hmm. that Sunday, and so hopefully we're at home. A lot of people were also working. Wherever you were at, you were throwing some logs in the fireplace if you had one, and you looked out your window, you saw this this very disturbing rain, but thought, well, it'll pass because it's springtime. This is just an April spring shower mm-hmm. coming, right? A little early. But perhaps just a bit cool. Unfortunately, of course, it was getting really bad south of New York. The worst was being felt here in the Atlantic, where ships were being batted about with violent winds. By that evening, dozens of ships in Delaware and southern New Jersey were smashed together and sunk uh, for all these violent winds. Winds that the New York Sun would later describe as, quote, a furious, blinding gale that made exposure to it an exquisite torture. 
so in New York, the the rain didn't abate, and it was certainly very cold. But nothing else had really happened by the time that most people went to bed. Did you know, Greg, that at this time, the way that the forecasting worked, too, mm-hmm. in each of the major cities along the eastern coast and, and around the country, people would take the weather conditions and uh, take down the weather conditions and then telegraph them to the agriculture department mm-hmm. in Washington. And there they would kind of put together the national map of what's happening with weather conditions and the well, wind blowing and that sort of thing. It sounds kind of sophisticated for that period of time. We sure. didn't have that before the telegraph, of course. No, well, they did sometimes employ carrier pigeons as well. But New York's weatherman, a man named Elias Dunn, Uh reported to his office because he did feel it was a bit strange on Sunday. He didn't normally work on on Sundays, Uh but he went from his home in Brooklyn to his office in the Equitable Building, which is at 120 Broadway. And he went up up onto the roof and took a a measurement on the the 150-foot pole and took the measurements. And he went, he thought, wow, the wind really is blowing and it really, the the temperatures are falling. Mm. And he went to telegraph it into D.C. and he didn't get any response. (gasps) Because the poles were already down, perhaps? Because, right, because, and and he didn't really understand what was happening. But there was no signal back from D.C. And so he was left to determine that something very odd was going on. And so obviously the the telegraph wires were frozen over or they were downed and there was no communication. It's very ominous. So shortly after midnight, so we're now at the very early hours of Monday, March 12th, that razor-like freezing rain became snow. By 6 a.m., it was almost horizontal snow. It was so furious. Uh, it made this full assault on the New York metropolitan area. From a contemporary history that had been written that year, quote, It came in whirls. It descended in layers. It shot along the great blocks. It rose and fell and corkscrewed and zigzagged and played merry havoc with everything that could swing or batter or bang or carry away, unquote. So it would snow like this nonstop for almost 36 hours from this particular moment. And not just New York, of course. This is all throughout the Northeast. And perhaps we should add this in parentheses at this point, that yes, the Great Blizzard of 1888 affected many, many, many cities from Washington to Philly to New York to New Haven to Boston all the way up and down the eastern seaboard. And so this is a great event in many, many different cities' history. And in many areas, we get more snow, up to four feet of snow in certain areas of New England. In New York, it was about – it would end up accumulating about 22 inches, 21 to 22 inches. The winds up to 85 miles per hour, creating these devastating snow drifts. So what you would have is like all like a furious wind blowing snow. Some blocks would be blown clean of snow mm. next to another block where the drifts would accumulate and cover buildings up to their almost their second or third floors. So imagine yourself. In a tenement, for instance, on the first floor on this Monday, you're waking up expecting to go to work. Yes, probably. But you may be trapped. You may not be able to even open your door because of these drifts that are 45, 50 feet on top of an average temperature that would, by Tuesday, be about 9 degrees with all of these bitter winds. Now, you know how we talk about like... I'm sorry, did you say 40 or 50 feet drifts? 40 to 50 feet drifts. That's correct. So, Right, because when you said two feet of snow, I kind of heard the sad trombone. It's a little bit <laughs> deflating. You know, you think, no, yeah. please, we've all been through snowstorms with more than two feet of snow. 
how does something really go? I mean, I hear you with these gusts of wind and certain blocks being blown dry, but up to 40 to 50 feet is really almost unthinkable. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's because how the wind meets the blocks, this furious wind and how snow would just get tossed around. Now, keep in mind on that Monday, even though it is, as you mentioned, even though it's very blistering and very cold and impossible to walk through, many people did try to get to work. You know, this is not an era where businesses had snow days. Right, or sick days, or personal days. This was an era when if you didn't show up for work, somebody else would take your spot permanently. You you needed that money for that day, you know, and this was the era of large factories. You had no choice, no matter how bad it was. So if you wake up at 7 o'clock in the morning, you may struggle with the door a little bit. Let's say you're not even stuck in your tenement, but you are... You managed to get out. You managed to get out. You see a lot of snow when you think, well... I mean, I'm going to go to work. And that's what tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people tried to do that Monday morning. So how did people get to work? Well, with great difficulty. Mm-hmm. First of all, you stepped out of this house, either your tenement or you were in Murray's Hill or wherever you were, you stepped out onto the street. And the first thing that probably made you think twice about going any further was the fact that Overhead, there were wires that were snapping, that were falling down. There were poles down in every direction. The winds were so ferocious that they were they were snapping these these wooden poles, mm-hmm. and the tops of those poles that would branch out to hold up to twenty different wires mm-hmm. each were just snapping off and throwing these wires down. Well. Of course, that's inconvenient if that's a telegraph or telephone wire, but it's downright dangerous if it's an electrical wire. Because some of them would be electrical, not just telegraph. And they'd still be on, and so these live wires would hit the street and cause complete havoc. And that for nothing would be covered in snow. Right. So these were creating quite a dangerous situation in the streets. If that happened, of course, they would try to block off the street around it. I mean, we've seen it even today when something weird like that happens. They'll shut down an entire block. Mm -hmm. Well, they were struggling to contain the situation. Furthermore, there were carriages. There were people who were venturing forth in cabs and, and with their horses and carriages. They were starting to get stuck in these in these snowdrifts as well. Some would simply abandon their, the vehicle, their carriages uh-huh. because they couldn't get through a particular snowdrift like uh-huh. you were talking about. Others were perhaps, they were merchants, they were out with their carts, they were trying to push to a marketplace. It was impossible. They thought that they could get out, but they they couldn't, they got stuck. Some were just leaving their carts and their wares right there in the street. You know, people literally didn't know. They weren't able to telephone each other because telephone lines were down. I doubt that people were telegraphing or ham radioing each other. (laughs) And the papers weren't getting delivered. I mean, there was... You had no idea. There was no communication at this point. You didn't know how long it was going to last. By the early mornings, the winds had really picked up to over 75 miles an hour, and at which point the storm became really a hurricane. Mm-hmm. So if the person does manage to get through the blocks to their mode of transportation, uh-huh. so people who were trying to reach a train, if you lived up in Fordham, if you were, if you were outside the city trying to get in, well, your trains weren't running because by five o'clock in the morning, all the trains in and out of the city had stopped. The track conditions just couldn't handle it. They were too icy. They were snowed over. Even the fire commissioner, a man named Henry Perroy, he wired downtown on the only working telegraph wire that he was stuck up in Fordham without any trains running downtown. So people were not able to get in even really necessary personnel weren't able to get into the city and the trains couldn't go through tunnels because the snow was starting to 
to blow in and drift and, and fill up the tunnels. And this is also including the West Side train, right. um, which included a lot of the food products. Right. So this was affecting food and other kinds of merchandise trying to get into the city. Everything basically ground to a halt. And that's just the commuter trains. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. as you mentioned before, at this point, there were those elevated railways. Oh, yes. How are they operating? Well, they're clearly not. Well, but they were operating in the morning. The trains were still on, and people left their homes just expecting you know, to be a- among the tens of thousands of people that took them every day to get to work. And many of those initial trains would run, but but by 7 o'clock in the morning, there was a huge backlog of stopped trains just literally (laughs) stopped in their tracks. So stopped in the middle of blocks, stopped in the middle of stations. They they were stopped in place for hours, stranding more than 15,000 passengers high above the street in their cars. Stuck in trains, like they can't get out. I read that along 6th Avenue and the 6th Avenue elevated line, there was a line of stopped trains which ran from 4th Street and 6th Avenue, so really today's West 4th Street station, if you can imagine the the IFC theater right there. Mm -hmm. Trains starting there going all the way up 6th Avenue to 28th Street, basically Tin Pan Alley, Uh just lined with elevated trains that were stuck in place between stations. And people in them not knowing how to get down. And the furious winds outside, I mean, it must have been terrifying, thinking that maybe the train would blow off the tracks. Well, at 7.30 in the morning, there was one train that careened into another along 3rd Avenue at 76th Street, really hit the back of another train that was stuck in place and 14 passengers would hurt. The driver of the train that struck the other one would later die from the the head injuries. So there were very dangerous situations, thousands of people stuck in these trains, and some would venture out. You know, they could open up the doors (laughs) and they could venture out onto a tiny little platform and then walk along next to the track all the way back up to the station. But you are, say, 20 feet above the ground, above these snow drifts. On a slippery track. On a slippery surface, and, and you've got hurricane-strength winds blowing <laughs> against you. It's not a position you want to be in. That is truly terrifying. That's the most terrifying thing you've ever described on this podcast, Tom. <laughs> well, well, luckily, though, you know, there were some entrepreneurial sorts, because the fire department was trying to rescue these people, but mm-hmm. not fast enough. Uh, so there were people who owned ladders, you know, who oh. knew that there were so many New Yorkers <laughs> who had really long ladders at home? All of a sudden, ladders come out of the woodwork. And let me guess, they charged, Literally. <laughs> and they, they charged money, I'm assuming. <laughs> you know your city well, Greg. They charge between five cents, which uh-huh. seems, you know, like that's... I'd pay a nickel to, to, get, to, to be get, rescued. To get out of the damn train, of to course. Get, yes. To get out of the damn train. Up to a dollar. So some people were, in 1888, a dollar. I mean, that's pretty pricey to get hauled down. <laughs> so was everyone rescued out of the trains? By Monday, by the afternoon or something, or N- not everybody. Actually, by one account I read in the Epic of New York, one car full of thirty passengers was stranded at a place where these gentlemen with their ladders couldn't get to, oh. couldn't be reached, and they were stuck in this in this car for a full fifteen hours. Getting to know each other very well. <laughs> well, actually, they got to know each other very well because, as luck would have it, they were stopped above a bar. 
And so they lowered a bucket down to the bar, and they received lots of booze to get them merrily through the night. Well, they deserved it. They earned it. They did. So these are the trains, but what about the right. boats? The boats, yeah, were equally, basically... Equally frozen. Und- because East River was, for the most part, frozen. By the end of Monday, would be pretty much totally frozen. The Hudson was freezing over. The ferries taking passengers between Brooklyn and Manhattan were stopped. This would get very dangerous on Tuesday, not to jump ahead of ourselves, Mm -hmm. but as things were still very chilly, but they would bring out tugboats to try to break up the ice. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there were 40 men trying to cross uh, the East River when the breaking of the ice happened, and the ice that they found themselves on, the big sort of jigsaw puzzle piece of it, started floating off to sea with all of them on it. They had to be rescued. They were fine. Okay, 40 men on an ice flow. Right. So how did our landmarks fare here in the weather? Well, the Brooklyn Bridge was closed to traffic um, on Monday, though pedestrians, you know, could walk across the, the pedestrian walkway. They were strongly encouraged not to cross. And by later on Monday, they were actually forbidden to do it. It, it wouldn't reopen until Tuesday morning. So people really were stuck in place, not being able to get between uh, Brooklyn and Manhattan. Some people, don't forget, did make it into work. And couldn't get back. And couldn't get back. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.
Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. It wasn't just the wind and the snow and the ice. It was other things that were flying in the air. We had wires coming down, but we also had things flying off of buildings. Yes, yeah, signs, and even pieces of buildings right. would just fly about and like knock people in the head. So you were staying inside if you could, though, of course, this being New York, this being an emergency situation, but also a beautiful natural occurrence. People took to the streets um, <laughs> of all classes. I think it kind of made a, a festive atmosphere as everybody wanted to race outside and be part of something that they saw already is very mm-hmm. historic. Now, as you said, many of the telegraph and electrical wires had been ripped down. Matters got so out of hand by that Monday afternoon that many of the electric companies just shut the power down entirely. Mm. So by that evening, those places that did have electricity, and keep in mind the whole city even didn't have it by this time anyway, those that were wired for it, it was shut down. Which is another kind of creepy parallel to Sandy. Yes. So you have a dark, scary city. And even the gas I read was turned off at 10 p.m. that night for for safety reasons, which made it a dark, scary, cold city. Mm -hmm. Schools were closed. City business was pretty much shut down during this period. Over the next two or three days, there would be 200 people killed. Horrifyingly, many uh, would collapse or were injured while they were walking outside. And then there would be so much snow and so much wind that their bodies, collapsed and unconscious, would be then covered with snow. And so a lot of people froze to death in this manner because it happened so quickly. Like you might like get hit in the head with something and fall down and 10 minutes later, you're covered. This would also be a problem with people who were heading out to the bars, because, of course, in New York, during a situation like this, people hit the bars. Both the saloons and the churches were were all open during this period of time. Though I would say the people leaving the saloons were probably in a more precarious situation (laughs) than those leaving the churches, because they'd be fully intoxicated and trying to get back home and slip and fall into a blanket of snow and not Mm -hmm. be recovered for days. Now, of course, there would be regular medical emergencies that would happen in the city and doctors couldn't get out and sick or injured people couldn't get to hospitals. In fact, this was the unfortunate fate of a man named Henry Berg, who was the founder of the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, which Uh is a group that's still with us today. Very powerful. He fell ill that Monday of the storm. And by the time the doctor arrived several hours later, Berg had passed away. It took almost two weeks for them to finally bury him at Greenwood Cemetery because Greenwood was completely covered in snow. Right. So what about all the people who did manage to get to their offices, with many of the businesses actually closing up at, say, about noon Mm -hmm. and sending people back out into the storm? I'd I'd imagine that people couldn't get back home. Well, one big haven, luckily for people, were New York's many hotels, places like the Astor Hotel, for instance, places that, of course, were most reliable to have large stores of supplies. So it was a good place for people to stop. Of course, they would be wildly overbooked. They would even have, in some places, refugees on cots, and multiple people would be holed up in single rooms. In fact, one strandee in one particular hotel during this time was Mark Twain, who was was in New York during this period. He didn't live here yet, but he was traveling, and he wrote to his wife. He was very annoyed by the storm, and he had to... (laughs) Naturally... 
Now, a big misconception is that Wall Street was completely shut down during this period. In fact, on that Monday, some intrepid financiers actually managed to get to work, but then got stranded there. So the op- so it was, in fact, open for a very small period of time. Some firms did try to stay open this entire time, but just no one – they couldn't trade anything. No right. one was there. In fact, J.P. Morgan made the made the trek all the way down to his office and, and worked for several hours, about five hours, until finally at noon he decided to get back in his cab. Well, Morgan was one of the lucky ones. I have a tale of someone not f- so fortunate, a man named Roscoe Conkling, a very powerful political player in American politics at this time and a former New York senator. He was often perched up at the Fifth Avenue Hotel where he brokered a lot of deals, including making the career of a certain Chester A. Arthur, who then became president of the United States after the death of President James Garfield. So he was his career was kind of made by Congling, who was a bit of a power broker. By 1888, he had returned to law and he had an office on Wall Street. He stayed at work through Monday until Monday afternoon and left the office with the streets just completely wrecked with a young lawyer named William Solzer, Solzer who later in life would become the governor of New York. So imagine these two men in their thick coats and their top hats, like trudging through the trauma. And of this, this is this is Monday night. Monday night. Uh, so the winds have picked up and the the temperature has plummeted. It's getting extremely dark. Just the trauma of getting from Wall Street to about up to City Hall. So that's just a few blocks. Right. So in that time, the younger one, Solzer, decided, oh well, the Astor Hotel. It's just right here. I'm just going to just stop here for the evening. I can't walk any further. Conkling, who was actually staying that evening at the New York Club, which was on the northern end of Madison Square. So mm. so basically like 25th, 25th Street, yeah. right? He decided that he was just going to continue, that he was going to – it would be fine. It will just take him a little bit longer. He tried to catch a carriage, which mm-hmm. I, I can't even envision – Oh, like, they were they were still out, and they were charging exorbitant fares. I'd seen fifty dollars yeah, to take a ride. That's in fact that's how much the driver wanted from him fifty dollars, and he said, "Well, no thanks." He thought he would just trek on. So dozens of blocks through the snow here with this furious wind and cold, and now it's at night. At one point, he got trapped in a snowdrift up to his shoulders, but he kept going. It took him almost three hours. He finally got to the lobby of the New York Club here on the northern end of Madison Square and collapsed on the floor, just completely exhausted. He did survive that day, but he got an ear infection from this journey, and the infection spread, and then five weeks later, Roscoe Conkling died. Just a few yards from that spot where he collapsed, there's a statue in Madison Square Park of Roscoe Conkling. This is, of course, the most famous example of what's probably a very common story, as you mentioned with Morgan. Theodore Roosevelt, a young Theo Roosevelt, also made this crazy trek through the snow and survived. Newspapers at the time did attempt to publish every day, even though it might have been impossible to purchase them. Could you imagine like a poor newsie right, trying I, to sell them? I mean, how, I don't even know how you got the newspaper. Though I'm sure some tried. I mean, here we're talking about, you know, great writers and, and financiers who were inconvenienced by the storm. But imagine the trekking and the trudging mm-hmm. of all of the middle and working classes trying to get to their jobs. Now, keep in mind, even if everything was working properly and there was no snow, this is not an era of 
instantaneous news. So, I mean, like if, if a show is canceled, for instance, there's no way to get that news out to people. Speaking of which, they were obviously canceling the shows, right? Yes. I mean, like many people did attempt to go to the, to the theater. I mean, if you have an expensive ticket to a play, um, some people lived close enough to the theater. They did try to go. Most were canceled. But there was an occasional show or two that opened its doors. Some actors did trudge through the snow, including a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, a bit at, ironic. At Broadway and 30th Street. They managed to have most of the cast show up. They only had two or three understudies and about 12 people in the audience. Naturally, P.T. Barnum was not just deterred. He happened to be in town at Madison Square Garden. Well, it was the big opening, right? It was the big opening of, of that season. And his circus was there. And it's amazing. This is literally not that far from where Conkling had collapsed, right. you know? A hundred people showed up for his circus. They managed to get to the snow. And so Barnum threw a show for them on that Monday night. And as you say, it was the opening of his show, too. So among those hundred people were also VIPs who had shown up and members of the press who were then, everybody was brought down ringside. He brought out champagne <laughs> to sort of celebrate the occasion with everybody because it was, at this point, everybody realized this was an historic storm. Well, and Barnum loves his spectacle. And he loved his spectacle. So the spectacle became his VIP as politicians and his press people getting drunk on champagne and falling into the ring where they sort of performed for the clowns who took a seat <laughs> alongside and watched it all happen. But if you weren't lucky enough to have a ticket for Barnum, if you're not huddled in your home trying to keep warm, you're heading out to the saloons, you're heading out to the churches. By the way, a lot of the places, in another strange parallel, believe it or not, to uh, to Sandy, people try to sell off their beer because beer was very perishable back then before the uh. days of modern refrigeration. So saloons actually you know, wanted people to come in if they could so they could sell off the product early. And did you see that over in Macy's? Which is still down on 14th Street. Right. right. And in Macy's, several women had shown up to work that day. They hadn't made much in the way of sales, but they had even closed at noon and sent people home. But nobody could leave because of the storm. Mm -hmm. So they set up cots around the furniture in the furniture department. Oh. And all of the women sort of slept there together. Can you imagine? Slumber party. A big slumber party in Macy's. <laughs> B. Altman, rival to Macy's, had one sale that entire day on Monday. Mm -hmm. They sold one spool of thread to a, quote, <laughs> hardy housewife who trudged six blocks to get that spool. She just needed to finish that skirt. So the snow kept rumbling and blowing down onto New York uh, throughout Tuesday. Um, right, throughout so most this the continued on Tuesday. People didn't even try to get to work. No, on Tuesday, everything was like flattened, pretty much, completely shut down. At 6 a.m. on Tuesday morning, it was one degree below zero. But the winds had died down, but mm -hmm. still the city was trying to take stock of what had happened and what they were still living through. And the snow continued for another 12 hours, mm -hmm. so that would be about 36 hours of snow. So snow through Tuesday, really l laying that whole thick blanket of snow across the city. So, and by Wednesday, then the, the snow itself actually died down. The really heavy part of the blizzard died down. People could begin leaving their homes and pick up the pieces here. But where do you even start? I mean, the city was really in shambles. You had still these wires down all over the place. Mm -hmm. Well, the city gave $25,000 to the Department of Street Cleaning, which we had mentioned, to organize what they called an army of the shovel <laughs> to get out there to hire people. 
to just start shoveling away the snow and to to deal with it. I mean, there was no possible like street cleaning machine at this day. No, Literally, it was, it was manpower. So, it was so disorganized too, and it was just not a, a high priority. Well, this army really only attacked the main drags. They really focused on Fifth Avenue, on Broadway. What about all these other streets? There were 200 miles of New York City Mm -hmm. streets. And again, we're only talking Manhattan at this point. And yet these streets did get cleared. So who cleaned it? Well, this kind of comes back to the guys with the ladders who were helping people down from the elevated railways, (laughs) enterprising New Yorkers with their shovels headed out and offered to clear off people's sidewalks and stoops and whatnot and, and even streets. For some money. For a price. And people gladly handed it over to to get a little peace of mind and to get out of their houses. And these fellas had to cart the snow away and actually take it all the way either to the piers of the East River or to the Hudson to dump it into the water. So that's how they got rid of it. That was the sort of officially sanctioned way of getting rid of it. Sure. Others who were in a hurry or who didn't feel like all that carting would simply light a bonfire. (laughs) They would just start a fire in the middle of the street. Because as we know about New York, that is always the safest thing to (laughs) do. Sure, just start a fire in a very central location. And and let the heat just melt off all the snow, which, of course, led to lots and lots of flooding and, and damaged goods. And fires. While they were digging out, while they were melting snow, of course, they were coming across all manner of things, including people who had fallen into the banks, as you had mentioned, including mm-hmm. many animals who had gotten out, including thousands and thousands of dead birds that had migrated and been caught up in the storm as well. It's been said before that it was maybe a relief that Berg passed on before the blizzard because there was so much devastation to New York's animal population. Right. Uh, there, was, there were hundreds of animal carcasses in the snow. But by Friday, some of the utilities were coming back into operation. The streets, the main streets anyway, were getting cleared. Even trying to get down the street several days later, you would have these dirty, filthy mountains of snow that would be five to six feet high. Well, we do still see those every once in a while. Yeah, that's a very relatable sight to me, (laughs) I have to say. A kind of grisly gray mountain. Now, you know, there is one type of New Yorker that benefited greatly from the blizzard. That would be the amateur photographer. The reason that this is such a well-known blizzard is because it's one of the first great events in American history that is widely documented in photos. And what I mean by that is not just here in New York, but in Boston, in Philadelphia, in all these cities, in all these smaller towns, because people had cameras now. It was This was a technology that was very pervasive by this time, and people had outdoor cameras. And so many photographic studios sent photographers into the snow and we'd later sell souvenir snow pictures um, at premium prices of course in fact the next year at on the anniversary of the blizzard the brooklyn academy of photography exhibited its very first display of blizzard portraits at the brooklyn academy of music so in the weeks following the blizzard, the city really needs to assess what it needs to do. They, they're able to look at what happened and say, how can we improve this? There's all these things that we've been meaning to do. Um, now we need to kind of fast track them. And in the case of the wires, the state had passed legislation many years before the storm decreeing that all wires had to be buried to prevent some sort of terrible situation like this from happening as well because it, would, it was a public safety hazard. But the private businesses, they always managed to push back successfully up to this time. Well, the following year, in 1889, New York got a new mayor by the name of Hugh Grant. 
Oh, but I thought he lived off in Notting Hill. <laughs> um, yes, he happens to share a name with a, um, a fine, dashing. B- dashing British actor, but in fact, not the same person, obviously. He lived 100 years before. In fact, he was the youngest mayor in New York City history to this day, still is. He was 31 when he got elected. Was he dashing? He was quite dashing, Mr. Grant, this Grant, this Hugh. But a different hue. A, a diff- and a different hue here. One of Grant's platforms in getting elected was that he wanted to bury all of these wires under the ground. It was one of the things that he wanted to do. Now, the same year in 1889, there were two very brutal accidents involving electrocution, involving men who were working on the wires and died. Um, the newspapers, of course, were now using this in a sort of heightened sense to sell newspapers with headlines like, quote, met death in the wires and roasted on a wire gridiron, like splashed upon mm. the front page, like just trying to draw, draw attention to this in the most sensational way possible. And so within a few years, all lines, of course, would be buried underneath the street. And today we don't have any. So is it an overstatement to say that it was because of the blizzard that all of the wires had to be buried? Was it because of the blizzard and, and then public pressure that was placed upon these utility it companies? It was definitely the straw that broke the camel's back, to use, um, to use a tired metaphor there. But it really was like this got people to finally focus on this after having it drifting passively you know, in the headlines for so long. Another thing that got this extra boost for change was New York's transportation systems. So you had all these elevated locomotives, which had been around for about 10 years at this time. All these streetcars on ground level, all owned by private operators, it proved to be unsuitable for any kind of major disaster. Right, because not only were they not coordinated with each other, but they were creating a great public health hazard. So people had already been discussing underground subterranean tunnels and a subterranean train at this time. And there had been experiments with it, with Beach's pneumatic tube that was under City Hall. Right, down by City Hall, exactly. But, but that had proven not a popular idea at the time. Right. Now, of course it was expensive. Right. You know, it's just like with burying wires. If people weren't willing to pay to bury the wires, are they really going to pay for the construction of underground subways? But post-Blizzard, it seemed like a lot better idea now. And plus, technology was improving, so it seemed like it could become a reality In 1894, with the Rapid Transit Act, New York created a board of commissioners to plan out officially the very first subway system. It would take over a decade for this to even start because even with the blizzard, people were still unconvinced due to the cost. Meanwhile, by the way, Boston, which was also greatly afflicted by the blizzard, they had their first underground train, the first subway in 1897, less than a decade after the blizzard. By March of 1900, the very first New York subway tunnel began to be dug near City Hall under the operation of the IRT and, of course, would open in 1904. And to throw in another plug, if you haven't listened to it, we have a whole series on on transportation, including the subways and Elevated from about a year and a half ago. Strongly recommended. And finally, Tom, I want to leave us on street cleaning. Because yeah, I think it's a please, take I us think, to the I Department think, of Street Cleaning, <laughs> the Department of Sanitation. This storm really illustrated the flaws in New York's sanitation system. 
it just so happens that the Department of Street Cleaning at this time mm-hmm. was heavily influenced and governed with corruption. And so because of that, it was never very effective. But after the blizzard, we're actually during this period with the elimination of government graft and this crackdown and all this corruption, because of all of this cleanup, general cleanup in the police force, it slowly freed up other areas of government to be more efficient. And so after that, naturally, this became an area where you had a lot of room for growth. Under the reform administration of another mayor named William Strong, he hired a Civil War veteran named George Waring to man the sanitation department. And he almost ran it like a military unit. They even wore white outfits. Today, the sanitation department still handles garbage removal and snow removal. That's um, true. And, right. and we know in the face of a blizzard, usually the only vehicles that are moving along the streets are the dump trucks well, the dump, right. that have the snow plows attached to the front of them. And although like Tammany and corruption would return to government, I mean, this is not something that would just wipe away at the end of the 19th century. The sanitation never fully digressed uh, back to what it used to be. So to this day, those are it's still the same department cleaning the snow and cleaning the muck and when we have more courage and are less afraid of forces working against us we will tell the story of the sanitation Sanitation department indeed um that would be a fascinating tale i think you know with dirty dirty tale (laughs) with every big disaster whether it be sandy which happened a few months ago or whether it be the blizzard that happened generations ago you know, the city benefits from the mistakes and oversights of those previous generations. Like even today, we look at the, what happened in Sandy and all of the, the power outages and all the houses that were destroyed. And the city is trying to come up with ways to improve it for the next disaster, which will happen sometime in the foreseeable future. Things like building a seawall, making improvements to the subways, which were you know underwater. Many stations were closed for a few weeks. And just as with Sandy, in the blizzard of 1888, many New Yorkers saw it as this event, this historic event that shook up their daily grind and which became something that they really waxed nostalgic about for uh, for the rest of their lives. Many others were affected in a way that really no nostalgia could help fix. They were affected in ways that, from which they never really fully recovered. So it's interesting in telling the story of a disaster, of a weather emergency, because there is great gaiety, and at the same time, there are people who are very, very much affected and live through very difficult moments. So thank you for joining us as we made our way through the windy history of the blizzard of 1888. And don't forget, as you grow complacent in the coming months, as we head out of the winter of 2013, that it wasn't until March of 1888 that mm-hmm. this storm struck and just to underscore it again <laughs> 125 years ago yes yeah, so so a toast to the anniversary of this momentous and scary event thank you very much for listening have a great new york week whether you live here or not see you real soon the legends are true Our overwhelming power the sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba-go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.